Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Radio Westeros, Episode 77, Aria, Part 2. And welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere. And I'm Yoke Boy. Thanks everyone for joining us today for this second instalment of our series covering Arya Stark. And before we begin, we want to let you know that during the writing stage of this episode, it became clear that this series will actually be four instalments rather than the three as originally planned. Yeah, that's right. It turns out that there was so much to be said about Arya's months at Harrenhal in A Clash of Kings that there was no way we could fit all of it, plus her entire A Storm of Swords arc, into one episode. So part two, which we present today, will chronicle her time at Harrenhal up to her reunion with Harwin at the Inn of the Kneeling Man early in A Storm of Swords. And part three will pick up her story as she journeys the Riverlands, first with the Brotherhood Without Banners and then with Sander Clegane, up until she departs Westeros, heading for Braavos. And the final installment will cover her days in Braavos as an apprentice at the House of Black and White. As far as this episode goes, it's notable that Arya's chapters at Harrenhal are divided into two periods, the months after her arrival when Arya as Weasel served House Lannister, and the weeks following the castle's fall to Roose Bolton, when she continued as a serving girl under the name of Nan. And so this episode will be separated into three parts, Weasel, Nan, and finally Aya, covering the days after her escape up until that fateful meeting with the Brotherhood Without Banners. But before we begin today's episode, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and our deepest thanks go to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Crispy the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltude, John Wargarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib-Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Patrons receive benefits such as early release shout-outs and access to patron-exclusive episodes, as well as patron-only channels in our Discord server. You can find more details at patreon.com slash radioestros. And now, let's get started with Arya Stark, Part 2. 
If there were ghosts in Harren Hall, they never troubled her. It was the living men she feared, Weiss and Sir Gregor Clegane and Lord Tywin Lannister himself. At the conclusion of part one of this series, Arya was newly arrived at Harrenhal in a group of small folk swept up by Gregor Clegane's men. She had been put to work serving the Lannister army who had taken possession of the Riverlands' largest and most storied castle. In this episode, we'll see the continuation of the major theme of identity with her shifting identity throughout A Clash of Kings, prefiguring her association with the faceless men in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons in more ways than one. Vengeance is also becoming a major theme in her arc, and we'll see that she continues to be an outsider, never quite fitting in with any group. This is also a time of continued growth for Aya. Back in King's Landing, she had told her father, Sirio says that every hurt is a lesson, and every lesson makes you better. If Sirio was right, then a time in the Riverlands, and especially at Harrenhal, would go a long ways towards making her better, though at what remains to be seen. Early in her captivity with the Lannister forces, she had probably passed her 10th birthday, though we expect such a milestone was likely far from her thoughts, if she could even be aware of things like dates and the passage of time in the situation she found herself in. Separated from the two people remaining from Yorin's band, Gendry and Hot Pie, who were assigned posts based upon their respective skills, Arya, now calling herself Weasel, was placed under the supervision of an understeward named Weiss. As we briefly touched on in part one, the cruel and abusive Weez would soon become the focus of Aya's hatred. Weasel was put to work cleaning and serving and running errands in Harrenhal's Wailing Tower, and she thinks a lot about the history, real and legendary, of the great ruined castle that had recently been occupied by a kinswoman of Aya Stark's mother. Although because Aya never pointedly recalls that Catelyn Tully's mother was born Menisa Went, it's unclear if she's aware of her grandmother's connection with the place. What she is aware of are the ghost stories that abound there, though for the most part she thinks they are stupid. She wonders why people would believe that the ghosts of Harren the Black and his sons roam the cellars of the Wailing Tower when they all died in the aptly named King's Pyre Tower, now occupied by Tywin Lannister. And she realizes very quickly that the Wailing Tower only wails when the wind comes from the north, a detail we'll return to shortly, and that the ghosts, if they did exist, were no real threat to her. Here's a passage. The Wailing Tower only wailed when the wind blew from the north, and that was just the sound the air made blowing through the cracks in the stones where they had fissured from the heat. If there were ghosts in Harrenhal, they never troubled her. It was the living men she feared, Weiss and Sir Gregor Clegane and Lord Tywin Lannister himself. Early on, Aya wondered what would happen if she revealed herself to Tywin. Back in A Game of Thrones, when Tywin first learned that Jaime was captive at Riverrun, it was Adam Marbrand who dismissed the value of Sansa and Arya as hostages, saying Rob, quote, would have to be an utter ass to trade Jaime Lannister's life for two girls. 
but it seems like Tyrion wasn't so sure. When he arrived at King's Landing in A Clash of Kings, one of the first things he did was inquire about Arya. It seems like Tyrion, more perceptive than his cousin Sir Adam, realised that Catelyn Tully might be convinced to trade for her daughters. Whether Tywin would have been of the same mind is anyone's guess. But based on the eventual fate of Jane Poole, we can probably be united in our relief that Arya kept her silence. Because he had more of an impact on her day-to-day existence, Weiss the Understeward quickly became equal to Gregor on her threat radar, earning him first place on her nightly prayer list. Her prayer, born from the horrors of the storehouse by the lakeshore, had become habit, mantra, and hit list all rolled into one. Regarding the compulsion she felt to recite the names of all those who had wronged her, it says, if she let herself forget even one of them, how would she ever find him again to kill him? Clearly, future vengeance is more of a motivating factor at this point than, say, the desire or will to escape. However, while she was reciting the names of all the people who had harmed her or her family, she pointedly avoided remembering names of her new contemporaries in service at the castle. It says that knowing people's names, quote, only made it hurt worse when they died, an obvious reference to her time with Euron's flock and later in the storehouse. And so there's a poignant juxtaposition between the two groups of people in her life, those whose names she remembers because she must and those whose names she doesn't want to remember. The reasons behind the distinction speak volumes about Aya's state of mind at this time. It also prefigures a time in her life when not knowing a person's name, and in fact not having one of her own, will be of the utmost importance. The significance of names to Aya relates to the struggles with identity we highlighted in part one, and which will continue to be a major theme in her arc moving forward. And speaking of flocks, while her time in the storehouse and later on the road being herded towards Harrenhal had made her feel like a sheep, she now frequently thinks of herself as a mouse, small, grey, and mostly invisible to the inhabitants of the castle. As such, she begins to capitalize on a talent we noted in the previous episode, her ability to observe people and learn from what she hears. She understands that people will say all manner of things around servants who are, in large part, invisible to the upper classes. And so she, and the reader along with her, learns not only many personal details about the lords, knights, squires, and serving folk who inhabit the castle, but news from outside its walls, the state of the realm, with Stannis and Renly Baratheon each now claiming to be their brother's heir, Rumors that Joffrey was a bastard, and yet another mention of Lord Beric Dondarrion. For the first time, after a number of hints, we hear someone claim that Lord Beric cannot be killed. It says, A fat archer once said the bloody mummers had slain him, but the others only laughed. Lorch killed the man at Rushing Falls, and the mountains slain him twice. Got me a silver stag says he don't stay dead this time, neither. That was also the first mention of the Bloody Mummers, who, like Lord Beric, would soon loom large in Arya's life. We get a full description of, quote, the queerest company of men she'd ever seen when they arrive at Harren Hall shortly after. 
Aya quickly realizes that the Bloody Mummers, or as they prefer to be known, the Brave Companions, are just the latest in Tywin Lannister's collection of monsters. Vargo Hote's men didn't stay long though, being quickly sent out foraging and likely searching for Lord Beric and his men, who continued to plague the Lannister forces. Before they went, Aya overheard them talking about the Northern Army under the command of Roose Bolton, encamped nearby on the Ruby Ford of the Trident, a place Aya would have been very familiar with from her journey south to King's Landing with her father. This overheard conversation leads Aya to realise, for the first time, that not only were her brother's men in the area, but that Rob himself was at Riverrun. Yeah, Arya had no idea how close Riverrun was to Harrenhal, but she did resolve to find out. In the meantime, make note of the fact that the Bloody Mummers were clearly aware of Tywin's potentially precarious position between two northern armies. We also hear about a few dozen Northmen who were being held at Harrenhal after being captured by Tywin and his men at the recent battle at the Green Fork. Arya recognizes several Freys, one of whom we eventually learn was Hostine, who much later would be mocked by Stannis Baratheon as Sir Stupid. She fails, though, to recognize Harry and Karstark and Wyllys Manderley by their sigils, in spite of the fact that the former may have visited Winterfell at some point, while she herself had once gone to visit House Manderley in White Harbor with her father. She thinks about her own inability to recognize sigils and banners and contrasts it with Sansa's near-perfect recall neither the first time nor the last, that the sisters' talents will be contrasted in such a way. However, Arya did recognise Lord Medgar Kerwin, since Castle Kerwin was a mere few hours' ride from Winterfell. Recognising a Northman and a wealthy adult male at that, one of her brother's principal bannermen, someone who would be in a position to recognise and protect her, is the first time Aya allows herself to truly hope that someone might rescue her since Euron's death. Unfortunately, Lord Kerwin had taken a wound at the Green Fork, and before Aya could work out how to get his attention, she saw three silent sisters removing a body from the tower where he had been held. When Arya learned that it was Lord Kerwin who had died, it says the words felt like a kick in the belly. She immediately began internally scolding herself for daring to hold this hope in the first place. He couldn't even help himself, you stupid mouse, she tells herself. And so, with the return of hopelessness, Arya resumed listening at doors, hoping like a mouse for some morsel that would prove useful. Her family was mentioned often in the conversations she overheard, whether it was Rob and her mother at River Run, her Aunt Lysa in the Erie, or the persistent rumors about the Starks having an army of wargs. One piece of information in particular stands out to the reader in hindsight, and that is the rumor that Tywin had sent Sir Gregor and the Bloody Mummers out to deal with Roose Bolton. Keep an eye on that detail. Then came the day that Armory Lorch arrived at Harrenhal, a revenant from a nightmare whose sigil, unlike those of the Northmen in the tower, was seared into her mind. The manticore of House Lorch inspired feelings of fear and hatred in Aya. Its bearer was responsible for the death of Euron at the Holdfast, after all, and held a prominent position on her list of names. 
Little did she know that Aubrey Lorch had a long history of brutality to non-combatants as well, in particular children, as he is held most likely to have thrown the three-year-old Lord Tarbeck down a well during the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion and was named by Tywin as the murderer of three-year-old Princess Rhaenys Targaryen during the sack of King's Landing in 283 AC. Seeing Armory and his men, and hearing the servants whisper that they had, quote, ridden all the way round the lake chasing Beric Dondarrion and slaying rebels, sparked an indignant rage. We weren't rebels, we were the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch takes no side. Noting that there were fewer men accompanying Sir Armory than she recalled, and that many were wounded, her thoughts turned to spiteful vengeance. I hope their wounds fester. I hope they all die. But Lorch wasn't the only person Arya recognised riding into the yard that day. One of the new arrivals would change the course of her time at Harrenhal, and indeed her young life. Unleashed on the Riverlands, two others would personally wreak untold violence and devastation. Here's a passage. Then she saw the three men near the end of the column. Rorge had donned a black half-helm with a broad iron nasal that made it hard to see that he did not have a nose. Biter rode ponderously beside him on a destrier that looked ready to collapse under his weight. Half-heeled burns covered his body, making him even more hideous than before. But Jack and Hagar still smiled. His garb was still ragged and filthy, but he had found time to wash and brush his hair— it streamed down across his shoulders, red and white and shiny, and Arya heard the girls giggling to each other in admiration. The arrival of Jack and Hagar at Harrenhal indeed changed everything for Arya. Later she would wonder when she had found her courage, lost to her since her captivity at the warehouse had turned her into a sheep. The answer, of course, is Jacken. Jacken made me brave again. He made me a ghost instead of a mouse. And that's because Jacken arrived like a genie from a bottle or a fairy godfather offering Arya three wishes, or more technically, three lives. The night Armory Lorch's men arrived at Harrenhal, it says Arya went to bed, reciting her names as usual, and quote, she thought she might add three more names to her prayer, but she was too tired to decide tonight. It seems Arya was consciously aware that the three lives she had saved from the flames were at stake, and more on this shortly. That night, as she dreamed wolf dreams of, quote, Wolves running wild through the wood, Jacken appeared at her bedside under cover of night. Jacken explained that he was in her debt, a debt that he must pay, using language that echoes the trademark line of the Westerosi lord whose service he's recently entered. He says, a man must pay his debts. A man owes three. Jacken speaks to Arya then about the Red God. At this point in the story, We've all heard about the religion of Melisandre, the Red Priestess of Ashai, and even of other Red Priests of Valor, the God of Light, to whom fire is a sacred substance. Later, we'll learn that followers of Valor occasionally offer sacrifices to their god to obtain desired results, but here we see someone who turns out to be a member of what is essentially a death cult, very carefully measuring out a payment of lives in exchange for his own narrow escape from death in the flames at the holdfast by the lake. Jacken tells her, 
The Red God has his due, sweet girl, and only death may pay for life. This girl took three that were his. This girl must give three in their places. Speak the names, and a man will do the rest. There's another interesting connection in Jacken's statement that perhaps goes unnoticed due to the focus on the Red God and his sudden connection with Aya's list of names. Only death may pay for life is a phrase uttered by only one other character in the novels. When Daenerys Targaryen seeks assistance saving Khal Drogo in A Game of Thrones, Miri Mazdur tells her, This is blood magic, lady. Only death may pay for life. Blood magic was at the root of all Valyrian sorcery, and it's perhaps no surprise to see it appear in Danny's arc. Miri tells Danny she learned the art while studying healing in Ashai, a place where people from many lands came to trade and share information, including, we later learn, Archmaester Marwyn of the Citadel and Melisandre, the Red Priestess serving Stannis Baratheon on Dragonstone. Eventually, there will be much more to say about the intersection of relorism and blood magic. Here we only have to wonder about someone who turns out to be an agent of the House of Black and White, invoking a precept that lies at the heart of the religion of their most hated adversaries, the blood mages of Old Valyria. As strange as it may seem, and though neither R'hllor nor the blood-soaked religion of Valyria are ever mentioned in connection with the House of Black and White and its many-faced god, those religions certainly do have death aspects. And so, while they may be uncomfortable bedfellows, we have to accept that there is indeed some place for discussion of both in the House of Black and White. For now, Arya accepts Jack and Hagar as a Larathi who had narrowly escaped death first in the Black Cells of King's Landing by consenting to join the Night's Watch, and then again in the Inferno at the Holdfast. Nor does she have any reason to connect Jack and with Bravos at this time, other than him having a certain pattern of speech similar to Sirio Pharrell's that Arya noted in her second A Clash of Kings chapter when she first spoke with him. But there does seem to be a peculiarly bravosi trait behind Jacken's recognition of Arya, a lesson Sirio taught Arya back in King's Landing. The seeing, the true seeing, that is the heart of it. Yeah, because in much the same way that Sirio recognised the Sea Lord's fantastic, imported female cat was no more than a common tom such as he saw in the alleys of Bravos every day, Jacken saw Ari for what she was, neither male nor common, but a young female of Westerosi nobility, Arya Stark. Of course, his observations may have been aided by a fact we later learn, that Arya's battle cry during the fight with Armory Lorch's men at the Holdfast was Winterfell, but we'd also suggest something more simple. Jacken was in King's Landing prior to joining Euron, and we have no way of knowing how long he spent in the Black Cells. Given what we learn about him, we'd guess it had not been long, that his mission for the Faceless Men had required he be there, and so he was. That said, it seems entirely possible that Jacken, possibly wearing another face, may have seen or encountered Arya Stark in King's Landing before her father's death. Once again, Arya encounters an adult at Harrenhal, who she hopes will help her. It says... He wants to help me, Arya realized with a rush of hope that made her dizzy. 
The disappointment of Lord Kerwin's death had hardly left her when Jacken arrived, and she immediately felt that hope rekindled. Here was someone who might help her, who might take her away. But Jacken makes it plain that he owes her three lives, no more, no less. He tells her to think about who she would name and leaves her to ponder, which she did as she lay trying to return to sleep, turning all of the names on her list over in her mind and continuing the next day as she worked scrubbing steps inside the Wailing Tower. Arya thought about the people she wanted dead. She pretended she could see their faces on the steps and scrubbed harder to wipe them away. The Starks were at war with the Lannisters, and she was a Stark, so she should kill as many Lannisters as she could. That was what you did in wars. But she didn't think she should trust Jacken. I should kill them myself. Whenever her father had condemned a man to death, he did the deed himself with ice, his greatsword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look him in the face and hear his last words, she'd heard him tell Rob and John once. A lot has been made of the fact that Arya didn't choose Tywin, or one of his chief lieutenants, Sir Kevin Lannister and Sir Adam Marbrand, were both at Harrenhal and the loss of either would have been hugely impactful on the war. But she clearly thought about expanding her list to include more Lannisters specifically and concluded that they were to be killed honourably in battle or by execution, not by assassination. Without using those specific words, her thoughts clearly acknowledge the difference and nod to the Stark way being the preferred path here. But perhaps more importantly, none of those three Lannister commanders had had a direct or personal impact on her life, unlike the 13 names on her nightly prayer list. Which brings us to another part of Arya's initial dilemma in making a choice. Sir Gregor and his men were away on a foraging mission, taking nearly half of her list with them. Of the other seven names, five belonged to people who remained in King's Landing, leaving only two in her immediate area, Wees and Armory Lorch. While she might have been on the verge of naming Wees, who continued to be cruel and unfair, as her first target, the understeward gained a brief reprieve when Sir Gregor and his men returned. The group were housed in the Wailing Tower and Arya was sent to tend to them by Wees. There she overheard Chiswick tell a story about the horrific and disgusting violation of an innkeeper's daughter, a girl not much older than Arya herself. As it happened, Chiswick already held a prominent position on her list of names. And so it says, Two nights later, Wee's sent her to the barracks hall to serve at table. She was carrying a flagon of wine and pouring when she glimpsed Jack and Hagar at his trencher across the aisle. Chewing her lip, Arya glanced around warily to make certain Wees was not in sight. Fear cuts deeper than swords, she told herself. She took a step, and another, and with each step she felt less a mouse. She worked her way down the bench, filling wine cups. Rorge sat to Jacken's right, deep drunk, but he took no note of her. Arya leaned close and whispered, Chisick, right into Jacken's ear. The Lorathi gave no sign that he had heard. Another two nights later, Chiswick fell off the wall walk in the middle of the night and broke his neck. 
Listening to the news in the kitchens the next day as Wheeze reported that some of the castle's small folk were blaming the ghost of Harren the Black, Arya exulted not only at the removal of a name from her list, but at the feeling of empowerment that came with knowing that she had made it happen. It says, It wasn't Harren, it was me. She had killed Chiswick with a whisper, and she would kill two more before she was through. I'm the ghost in Harrenhal, she thought. Much later, Theon Greyjoy, who had lived with Arya as a brother her entire life, would identify himself as a ghost in Winterfell. Other than their shared history, the main things the two have in common are an identity crisis and this self-identification as a ghost in a castle occupied by enemy combatants. Although the circumstances are quite different, there is a major point of intersection in what being a ghost meant to each of them. As a means of empowerment, the feeling of slipping unnoticed amongst one's enemies, gaining knowledge and perhaps causing them some harm or mischief must have been unparalleled. For two people who had been distinctly disempowered, albeit in radically different ways, this opportunity would serve as a game-changer in each of their arcs, allowing them to cast off an unwanted identity in favor of a new, more appealing one. Having discovered this power, though, it seems Aya wasn't eager to use it. As we'll see, she's increasingly aware that getting to the end of her three wishes would mean the end of her time as the ghost, the end of her power. It wasn't long after Chiswick's death that Arya started hearing rumours of some battle in the West, a victory for her brother, and then Lord Tywin began to make ready to march out, planning to leave the hated Amory Lorch as his castellan at Harrenhal. Watching Sir Adam Marbrand leave with his scouts and outriders, Arya thought, I hope he dies, I hope they all die, without giving any thought to causing his death herself. This is the second time we see Arya wish for a mass death, and some months later, at River Run, her mother will echo the sentiment as she tells Brienne about the deaths of her two youngest sons, I want them all dead, Brienne. Theon Greyjoy first, then Jamie Lannister and Cersei and the Imp. Every one. Every one. We've mentioned before how much Arya has in common with her mother, and this fierce devotion to family, the desire for revenge, the list of names of people who must pay, is one of the main things that connects them and will continue to do so. Shortly after watching Sir Adam ride out, while running errands for Wees, Arya heard some soldiers talking about her brother's victory, the wargs and giants that were rumored to ride with him, and wondering if they should be running in the other direction. She thinks, yes, it's you who ought to run, you and Lord Tywin in the mountain and Sir Adam and Sir Amory and stupid Sir Lionel, whoever he is, all of you better run or my brother will kill you. He's a Stark, he's more wolf than man, and so am I. It's plain that at this time, Arya was still viewing certain deaths as a matter for her brother to handle personally, in the Stark way, while the power bestowed upon her by Jacken was a very personal thing. While she singled out people who had personally wounded her, making the power she was wielding even more impactful in her life, those who were leading the Lannister war effort could and should be killed by Rob himself. At this point, she still had absolute confidence that that was the correct choice. 
Like Sansa back in King's Landing, she idolizes her older brother and has frequent thoughts about his abilities to kill all of their enemies. And so her intention on that last day before Tywin marched was to name Dunson or Polliver or Raff before they could leave with Sir Gregor. But as she lingered listening to soldiers talk, Weez came upon her and slapped her across the face in punishment for dawdling. Whereas earlier that day the under-steward had been pleased with her work delivering messages and offered her a reward at mealtime, part of a nice plump capon, now he shrieked that she'd be lucky to eat anything that evening. Aya's mood changed in an instant. It says, for a moment she had been a wolf again, but Weezer's slap took it all away and left her with nothing but the taste of her own blood in her mouth. She'd bitten her tongue when he hit her. She hated him for that. Weez had sealed his fate. In a callback to what was a constant theme for her in A Game of Thrones, Arya decided to give Jack and Weez's name because he did something that was patently unfair. And so, rather than doing any of the things Weez expected from her, she ran immediately to find Jack and It was Rorge who told her to look in the bathhouse, something in his manner hinting that he was actually afraid of the Larathi, which gave her pause. When she did find Jacken in the bathhouse, that very same bathhouse where Jamie Lannister and Brienne of Tarth would find themselves in a few months' time. Under the guise of delivering a message, she whispered Weiss's name in his ear and went about the rest of her day content that her chief tormentor's hours were numbered. But Weiss was still alive in the morning when the castle servants were roused for another day's hard work. In the early hours of the morning, she paused in her duties to watch the Lannister army ride out through the gates. The banners she sees are a veritable who's who of houses that will soon participate in the epic Battle of the Blackwater. Prester, Lafford, Brax, Lydon, Swift, Sarsfield, Peckledon, Foote, Craycall, and more. But it was the ones leading the army that gave her pause. Lord Tywin himself and his brother Kevin led the way, bedecked in their war finery, while, inexplicably last, the commander of the vanguard, Sir Gregor Clegane, rode amongst his men, making even the relatively tall Polliver look like a child. And it was at this point that Aya realized she had made a terrible mistake. Here's the passage. A shiver crept up Aya's spine as she watched them pass under the great iron portcullis of Harrenhal. Suddenly she knew that she had made a terrible mistake. I'm so stupid, she thought. Wheeze did not matter, no more than Chiswick had. These were the men who mattered, the ones she ought to have killed. Last night she could have whispered any of them dead, if only she hadn't been so mad at Wheeze for hitting her and lying about the capon. Lord Tywin, why didn't I say Lord Tywin? And this is the perpetual question when discussing Arya's three victims at Harrenhal. We've addressed why, on the surface, she seemed to feel that some of the men in Tywin's army, including Tywin himself, were best left for her brother to deal with. But we'd also suggest that perhaps Tywin and Gregor, maybe especially Gregor, were simply too frightening for her to consider. With two names still to go, perhaps she feared Jacken would fail or be killed himself, leaving the debt to her unpaid. Or maybe she just couldn't imagine anyone killing someone as large and monstrous as Gregor Clegane. 
In any case, with her sudden change of heart came a frantic rush to find Jackin before it was too late, to unname Weiss and to name Tywin Lannister in his place. But as the portcullis was lowered behind the departing army, she heard a scream. Arriving on the scene, she discovered Wee's dead, his throat apparently torn out by his own dog, who had been repeatedly noted to be nearly as unpleasant as her master, but was also his constant and dedicated companion, whom he raised from a puppy. Much later, in Bravos, I will learn the properties of a poison made from basilisk blood. Added to cooked meat, it produces a curious result. It will give a cooked flesh a savoury smell, but if eaten, it produces violent madness in beasts as well as men. A mouse will attack a lion after a taste of basilisk blood. Her immediate response upon learning of this effect will be to ask if it would work on dogs, proving that she hadn't forgotten Wheeze and his very curious death. Although Arya may have changed her mind at the last minute about Weez, she did still have one more name to speak. Weez's replacement, a man known as Pink Eye, was nowhere near as frightening as his predecessor, and so Arya began to wander the castle at night, knowing she could do so with impunity, and even went so far as to begin to think about escaping, telling Hot Pie one night, I bet we could escape, and Pink Eye wouldn't even notice I was gone. Hot Pie was comfortable in the kitchens, though, and Arya retreated to the castle yard to observe some new arrivals. The Bloody Mummers had returned, and they had prisoners with them. Arya was able to count 50 men and estimated the number of prisoners to be at least double that. Among them were Robert Glover and Aenys Frey, and men from House Karstark, Bolton and Kerwin, men whose swords were sworn to her brother Rob. The overlap with the prisoners who had been held by Tywin is a clue that these were men from Roos Bolton's army, last rumoured to have been encamped near the Ruby Ford. We mentioned earlier a rumour that the Mummers had been sent to deal with Bolton, and also their commander's knowledge of the disposition of the northern armies, one at Riverrun and another near the Trident. Somehow, it now appears that Vargo Hote and his brave companions managed to stop Bolton's advance across the river, cutting down his vanguard and taking its commander, Glover, and many of his men captive. Vargo Hote and Emery Lorch's mutual loathing had been commented on several times at this point, and in spite of the impressive haul, wagons filled with supplies and foodstuffs and over a hundred Northmen in chains, Sir Amory still seemed to be mainly annoyed that he had to share Harrenhal with these foreign sellswords. He sent the prisoners to be held en masse in a single cell, perhaps not as quick as Arya to notice their numbers and compare them to his own, which Arya estimated to be about a hundred men, as she ghosted away to contemplate her final name, it's noted that a, quote, swirling wind caused the wailing tower to scream. The wind was from the north, a potent symbol of what was to come at Harrenhal. Aya found Gendry at work in the armory and stopped to speak to him. The last time they spoke, he had told her that Hot Pie heard her yelling Winterfell at the Holdfast and warned her to come up with a cover story. 
Now she told him about her father's men, a virtual army held behind a single locked door, and asked his help setting them free. Gendry refused, unwilling to risk life and limb for something that seemed like an impossibility to him. They quarrelled and Arya left frustrated and angry. We're reminded of her reaction back in King's Landing when she found Desmond, one of her father's household guard, dead in the stables. Recalling how he had promised to protect her father, insisting that every Northman was worth ten Southerners, she flew into a fury when she saw only one Lannister corpse next to his, kicking his body and calling him a liar. Her similar anger at Gendry reminds us that, in spite of everything she's gone through, Aya is still a ten-year-old child who longs for someone to help her and cannot adequately process the feelings of anger and betrayal when they fail to do so. Gendry, however, was being practical and thought he was indeed protecting her by discouraging her from behaving recklessly. In justifying his refusal to run away, he repeats some words of wisdom he heard from the colorfully named Ben Blackthumb. A sword's a sword, a helm's a helm, and if you reach in the fire, you get burned, no matter who you're serving. In this, we hear an echo of something Jorah Mormont told Daenerys in A Game of Thrones. The common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends. It's no matter to them if the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, so long as they are left in peace. They never are. Gendry has an instinctive understanding that there are different rules for different classes of people, a lesson that Arya has been learning, but which doesn't come naturally to her. For her part, it seems like she was simply eager to see some kind of power that didn't originate from Jacken and his three wishes, an empowerment she seems acutely aware is about to run its course. Dismissing Gendry with the thought she was better off without him anyway, she headed to the castle Godswood, recalling the people who died in the storehouse and thinking about her one last name and about Jack and himself. After Weezer's death, she had found herself wondering if he was some sort of sorcerer, but she still acknowledged inwardly that it was he who had given her her courage back. It says, I was a sheep. And then I was a mouse. I couldn't do anything but hide. Jacken made me brave again. He made me a ghost instead of a mouse. But the whole business of Jacken and the final name was complicated. As much as she relished being brave again and might wish to extend the power that being the ghost of Harrenhal gave her, she knew that the choice had to be made. Westerosi legends are apparently full of the same tropes of our own because she thinks seriously about her third wish and what it would mean to her once she used it. Here's a passage. Jacken still owed her one death. In old man's stories about men who were given magic wishes by a grumpkin, you had to be especially careful with the third wish because it was the last. Chizik and Wheeze hadn't been very important, the last death has to count, Arya told herself every night when she whispered her names. But now she wondered if that was truly the reason she had hesitated. So long as she could kill with a whisper, Arya need not be afraid of anyone. But once she used up the last death, she would only be a mouse again. The three wishes trope often sees the wisher wasting the first wish, and even sometimes the second on frivolous desires. It's the third and final wish that matters, just like in old Nan's stories. 
often used as a corrective if the first two went badly, the third wish can return matters to the status quo or in some cases provide a release for an enchanted character, such as the genie freed from his bottle, and we'll come back to this when we get to the consequences of the final wish. A common lesson when a story involves wasted wishes is that most people aren't ready for power when it's handed to them. We saw this initially when Aya shied away from naming the people that mattered, but as she contemplates her third name, we sense she's realised the difference between marking someone for death in the way her father would have done in the name of justice and naming people out of personal reasons. Both Chiswick and Weez were cruel tormentors of powerless people, herself included, making their actions particularly offensive to Aya, who, as we've said, has been carried characterised as someone who despises unfairness. And so, from her perspective, it's not too hard to imagine that she did initially view saying their names as justice. And perhaps, in listening to his disgusting story, it could be said that she did metaphorically look Chiswick in the eye before saying his name. In some ways, then, her time as the ghost is an empowerment arc. But at the end of the day, the ghost had more in common with an assassin of the faceless men, which of course is what Jacken is, than with an arbiter of justice. Although considering that many months in the future, the kindly man of the faceless men will tell her, we kill men, but we do not presume to judge them, we should make a distinction, one that she herself may have failed to make, between Arya naming names and Jacken performing the deeds. What the empowerment of the Three Wishes really did for Arya is set her upon a vengeance arc, meshing with her prayer list and giving her the confidence to believe that one day she would see all the people on that list dead. But speaking of empowerment, let's get back to the final part of the last passage we read. So long as she could kill with a whisper, Arya need not be afraid of anyone. But once she used up the last death, she would only be a mouse again. As we said, she is keenly aware that the third name would be an ending, and this thought clearly identifies the crooks of the problem for her. Her recent empowerment depended on her deal with Jacken. Without him, she'd be a meek and invisible mouse again. This conscious awareness of the fleeting nature of the power Jacken had given her is actually the beginning of something. Aya has been a fierce little girl since we first met her, growing increasingly angry since her time in King's Landing and the months since her father's death. Here at Harrenhal, she is slowly coming to face the fact that she can't rely on anyone but herself, not Gendry, not Lord Kerwin, and not Jacken. But before that process is complete, we must address the third wish. The Godswood at Harrenhal was a place where, unbeknownst to Arya, a famous prince once marked the days to a showdown with his equally famous nephew by slashing the heart tree with his famous sword, a sword we readers hope to one day see make an appearance in the main storyline. It was also apparently the one place in the ancient castle where she felt safe, its seclusion and the presence of the old gods giving her the confidence to train as Sirio had taught her and to think about the problem she was faced with. Prefiguring a time in the future when she will hide a real sword away in order to protect her secret identity, 
she finds her practice sword, made from a broom handle, where she had carefully hidden it. It says, A slow little stream meandered through the wood, and there was one spot where it had eaten the ground away beneath a deadfall. There, beneath rotting wood and twisted, splintered branches, she found her hidden sword. While she consciously rebuilt the skills and physical agility she had learned from Sirio, dancing on branches above the ground in a tragic mirror to her younger brother Bran in the moments before his fall all those months ago at Winterfell, it says, A broken branch became Joffrey. She struck at it until it fell away. The Queen and Sir Illyn and Sir Marin and the Hound were only leaves, but she killed them all as well, slashing them to wet green ribbons. Aya was spending her training time role-playing the deaths of the people on her list who were out of reach. Perhaps in the moment, the safest way for her to channel her fear and anger was to focus on the people she had no power over. But like many things she does in this time, it still speaks volumes as to her state of mind. However, when no answer to the conundrum she faced presented itself, she decided that it was time to enlist the old gods. With memories of her father sitting beneath the Winterfell heart tree in prayer in mind, she decided that praying might help her find an answer to her problem. Silently, she addressed the gods of the tree. It says, Arya went to her knees. She wasn't sure how she should begin. She clasped her hands together. Help me, you old gods, she prayed silently. Help me get those men out of the dungeon so we can kill Sir Amory and bring me home to Winterfell. Make me a water dancer and a wolf and not afraid again, ever. Almost immediately, she was overcome by the thought that all of her father's prayers hadn't saved him. And she became angry and said aloud, You should have saved him. He prayed to you all the time. I don't care if you helped me or not. I don't think you could even if you wanted to. There's much to unpack here, but let's start with Aya's anger at her father's gods. Remembering his frequent prayers, she assumes that his death is proof that those prayers went unanswered. And yet that assumption is almost certainly a child's misunderstanding of the things a parent prays for. We know that Ned was willing to say anything, to stain his own honour with a lie, admitting to treason and worse, in order to keep his daughters safe. And so we can probably assume that in the moments of greatest danger to himself, his prayers to his gods were actually about his children, that they would be kept safe from harm. And considering that, in spite of appearances, four of his five children survive at the end of A Dance with Dragons, perhaps we can consider those prayers partly answered. In fact, we'll see that prayers to the old gods are frequently answered. In A Dance with Dragons, Bran has a vision of his father praying to the Winterfell heart tree that John and Rob grow up, quote, close as brothers with only love between them. And, well, time will tell if the gods granted the second half of his prayer from that vision, that his lady wife would find it in her to forgive him. The first did demonstrably come true. And also in A Dance with Dragons, Theon Greyjoy prays rather uncertainly to the same tree for mercy, for courage, for something he cannot name. But somehow he feels that the gods have heard him, that perhaps there is some mercy to be had, and he does eventually manage to save Jane Poole, who he was thinking of when he made that plea. 
Not that every prayer can be answered, and perhaps not everyone should be, but perhaps it's true that the old gods are more likely to answer than others. And so let's consider Aya's silent prayer. Help me, you old gods. Help me get those men out of the dungeon so we can kill Sir Armory and bring me home to Winterfell. Make me a water dancer and a wolf, and not afraid again, ever. Looking ahead, we can see that although Arya has yet to return home to Winterfell, all of the other elements of her prayer have so far come true. In spite of her fear that the conclusion of her three wishes would lead to her becoming a frightened mouse again, we'll see that the reverse happens. And considering what happens next, perhaps we could even consider that prayer to be her third wish, for hidden within it is a name, a name from her prayer list, the name of someone who would never again leave Harrenhal on Tywin Lannister's business. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. In the Godswood, Arya's petulant frustration with the gods, spoken aloud, was overheard by Jack and Hagar, who appeared as if out of nowhere. Telling her that the gods are not mocked, he continued, A man comes to hear a name. One and two and then comes three. A man would have done. The reckoning had come, and Arya was being forced to choose. Wondering if Jacken had arrived in answer to her prayers, she tried to convince him to help her free the prisoners. I want you to save the Northmen like I saved you, she says. Jacken made it clear that he knows her true identity, but also declined to do more than hear one more name, repeating, the gods are not mocked. One name isn't enough, though, and so Arya changed tack, asking a question. The name? Can I name anyone? And you'll kill him? When Jacken agreed and proceeded to swear by all the gods known to man, she sprung her trap. It says, Aya put her lips to his ear. It's Jacken Hagar. The immediate effect of this was electric. Protesting that she must be jesting, Jacken warned that she would lose her only friend. But he wasn't her friend, she reminded him. Her friend would help her escape, and he had declined. Apparently desperate to hear her speak another name, Jackin struck a bargain. If he did as she asked, she would unsay the name. The deal made, he bid her follow, now. At her surprise at the swiftness of his action, he said, A man hears the whisper of sand in a glass. A man will not sleep until a girl unsays a certain name. Now, evil child. Aya's thoughts reveal that she has indeed just received an answer to her prayer. I'm not an evil child. I am a direwolf and the ghost in Harrenhal. The plot to free the Northmen from the dungeon beneath the Widow's Tower became known as Weasel Soup in tribute to the name Arya had assumed when she arrived at Harrenhal. To Arya's dismay, Jacken enlisted the help of Rorge and Biter, who both terrified and disgusted her. With their help, along with several kettles of steaming hot broth, the eight guards Amor Lorch had posted to guard the Northmen were swiftly overcome. The surprise came when Robert Glover emerged from the cell, saying, This of the soup! That was clever! I did not expect that! Was it Lord Hote's idea? For reasons Arya couldn't understand, Rorge found that hilarious, and when Glover asked, Who are you, men? Are you of the Brave Companions? Rorge replied, 
we are now. When Jack and made some introductions to Lord Glover, Aya swiftly decided to remain weasel and thus invisible. After all of her hopes being pinned upon freeing these Northmen and them helping her return to her brother and mother at Riverrun, she decided, probably wisely, that she didn't want Rorge and Biter to know her true identity. Perhaps it was their unexpected alignment with the Bloody Mummers, but something about the situation felt wrong to her, and so she opted for silence. It was Jackin who explained when the Northmen, now accompanied by Rorge and Biter, swept away towards Barracks Hall, where Lorch's men were housed. He told her, A goat has no loyalty. Soon a wolf banner is raised here, I think. And so it is. Vargo Hote, seeing Tywin's position in the Riverlands as extremely precarious, had gambled and changed sides, striking a deal with Roos Bolton that resulted in a very clever plot to plant a force of men inside Harrenhal so that it could be taken from within. Had Arya chosen to wait and see, the Northmen would have been freed by the same mummers who had led them there in chains, and together the two groups would have slaughtered all of Lorch's men. And while that would have been a fine outcome as far as Arya was concerned, the end result of her using her third and final wish to free the Northmen was, ironically, saving not only Jackin, but Rorge and Biter from meeting the same fate as the rest of Amory's men. By claiming allegiance to Vargo Hote, we are now. The grotesque pair lived on to haunt the Riverlands well into a feast for crows. Perhaps Jacken realized the irony of what was happening when he asked Arya to unsay his name. When she asked if she could speak another name, the Lorathi pointed out that ten men had died as a result of the soup plot and that the debt was paid. As soon as she agreed, Jacken continued, A god has his due, and now a man must die. And then, to Aya's confusion, which swiftly mingled with awe, he passed a hand over his face and became someone else entirely. In answer to her astonished questions, not Jacken, told her that changing one's face was as easy as taking a new name, if you knew how. When she begged him to teach her, he offered to take her with him across the narrow sea. But still determined to return home, she declined, at which he gave her a gift that would one day change her life. The small iron coin didn't appear to be extremely valuable, but not Jackin explained that its value was beyond gold. If the day comes when you would find me again, he tells her, give that coin to any man from Bravos and say these words to him, Valar Merculus. But when he turned to leave, she begged him not to go, and that's when the huge irony of what had occurred hits home. In speaking Jackin's name, Arya had, in effect, actually killed Jackin. Here's the passage. Please don't go, Jackin. Jackin is as dead as Ari, he said sadly, and I have promises to keep. Valar Mogulis, Arya Stark. Say it again. Valar Morgulis, she said once more, and the stranger in Jackin's clothes bowed to her and stalked off through the darkness, cloak swirling. 
Jekin's departure is the end of the three wishes part of the storyline. The third wish had done its work, and like a genie from a bottle, Jekin was now free of Harrenhal. But so too were the Northmen, though perhaps their freedom had been inevitable all along. And in some ways, so was Arya, for although at the time she didn't know it, something had changed for her. Perhaps it was the old gods answering her prayer, but going forward, Arya would no longer be afraid and seemed to have reconnected with her stark identity, a wolf, no longer a mouse or a sheep. And yet, she remained an anonymous serving girl, even with the arrival of Roose Bolton, whom she knew to be one of her brother's sworn bannermen. When we come back, we'll explore what happened during those next weeks and offer some speculation as to why Aya chose not to identify herself to the Lord of the Dreadfort. But first, near the midpoint of the episode, it's time to give thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka and the Company of the Cats, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Kyle, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris the Unspeakable Terror, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Tater Nuts, Magnar of House Sten, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Four brave companions climbed to the ramparts and hauled down the Lion of Lannister and Sir Amory's own black manticore. In their place, they raised the flayed man of the Dreadfort and the direwolf of Stark. And that evening, a page named Nan poured wine for Roose Bolton and Vargo Hoat as they stood on the gallery. Aya has only one full chapter at Harrenhal under Roose Bolton, Aya 10 of A Clash of Kings. 
Bolton, the new lord, arrived near the end of Aya 9, the morning after Jacken's departure. By the end of Aya 10, they will have parted ways. But it's an incredibly dense chapter full of character work, plot advancement and foreshadowing. The chapter spans several weeks on either side of the Battle of the Blackwater and will attempt to contextualise its events against the larger backdrop of the War of the Five Kings. As we said, perhaps the main question to arise from it is why Arya does not identify herself to her brother's bannerman. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dig in. After Jacken changed his identity and left Harrenhal, Arya was left with the dead bodies of Amory Lorch's men, a small iron coin, and the phrase Vala Morghulis that Jacken had taken such pains to teach her. Observing the dead men, Arya remembered her dead companions at the Holdfast by the lake and thought stubbornly, defiantly, they deserve to die. Retreating to her bed of straw while events continued to play out, she heard the outcome of the night's work from the new under-steward Pink Eye the next morning. Them bloody mummers killed some Sir Amory's lot in their beds and the rest at table after they were good and drunk. The new lord will be here before the day's out with his whole host. He's from the wild north up where that wall is and they say he's a hard one. This lord or that lord, there's still work to be done. Any foolery and I'll whip the skin off your back. The dead Westermen were dragged to the flowstone yard, stripped of valuables and burned upon a pyre there. In general, Flowstone was noted to be a place where soldiers practiced swordplay while their squires maintained their equipment. As the name indicates, the ground is uneven and the name is likely a clue as to why, when Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters defeated Harrenhal with their dragons, the castle's five stone towers were literally melted by dragonfire, ending as weird lumpy fissured structures that remind Arya of, quote, an old man's gnarled knuckly fingers. She remembers old Nan telling her the story of the castle's destruction, saying the stone had melted and flowed like candle wax, and so we imagine that the Flowstone Yard got its name from being an area where liquid stone had once flowed and cooled like a lava field around a volcano. And as the castle prepared for its new lord and conqueror, not a novel event in its history by any stretch of the imagination, Few of its occupants would have known the identity of the northern lord who would be arriving. Readers can guess, though, since several chapters previously at River Run, Edmure Tully had told his sister Catelyn, When Lord Tywin went to Harrenhal, Bolton took the ruby ford in the crossroads. He has 10,000 men. I've sent word to Helmand Tallhart to join him with the garrison Rob left at the Twins. Bolton needs Frey's men and Sir Helmand's as well. I've commanded him to retake Harrenhal. Edmure's plan was to do exactly what Vargo Hote had no doubt feared, trap Tywin in the Riverlands between two northern armies, a sitting duck for a third army led by Rob Stark returning from the Westerlands. As we've discussed elsewhere, this was obviously not Rob's plan, nor did anyone reckon with Renly's death, Mace Tyrell's change of allegiance, Stannis's imminent arrival at the capital, and Tywin's rush south to confront him. 
Nonetheless, Edmure thought retaking the Riverlands' largest castle important enough that he overrode Rob's orders and recalled Lord Tallheart and his 400 men stationed at the Twins to join up with Bolton and dedicate themselves to the effort. Little did Edmure guess the castle would fall to around a hundred Northmen aided by his niece and their unlikely allies of the Brave Companions. It was one of the more distinctive members of the Brave Companions, Shagwell the Fool, who, rumour had it, had, quote, once killed the man for not laughing at one of his japes, who ensured that Weasel's part in the fall of the castle would not be forgotten. It says... Shagwell the fool hacked the heads off two dead knights and pranced about the castle, swinging them by the hair and making them talk. What did you die of? One head asked. Hot weasel soup, replied the second. Realizing that Robert Glover must have told the tale of his rescue from the dungeon, Arya wished Shagwell would stop spreading it around when she noticed castle folk, quote, looking at her strangely. The morning after the coup, Arya was set to work scrubbing blood off floors, perhaps a symbolically suitable task, given that much of the blame for the deaths would soon be laid at her door. Late in the day, Roos Bolton arrived, accompanied by what seems to be mainly his own men and men of House Frey. It says... It was almost even for when the new master of Harrenhal arrived. He had a plain face, beardless and ordinary, notable only for his queer pale eyes. Neither plump, thin nor muscular, he wore black ring mail and a spotted pink cloak. The sigil on his banner looked like a man dipped in blood. On your knees for the Lord of the Dreadfort, shouted his squire, a boy no older than Aya. And Harrenhal knelt. As Roos accepted the castle from Vargo Ho and paused to speak to Robert Glover and Annie's Frey, Arya was surprised to see Rorge and Biter amongst the bloody mummers. As they had arrived with Jackin in Amory Lorch's company, she expected they would have departed with him, but of course Jackin had simply vanished, replaced by a man who had no connection whatsoever to Amory Lorch, Harrenhal, or his erstwhile companions from the Black Cells. Rorge and Biter had no such powers of transformation, and so they had simply blended in with Vargo Holt's men. It becomes clear they were telling the story of what happened with the broth when Shagwell suddenly dragged Arya forward, announcing, My lord, my lord, here's the weasel who made the soup. Arya's first exchange with Roose Bolton seemed innocuous enough. She observed his pale eyes, the colour of ice, and answered his questions about her age, whether she liked animals and whether she was afraid of leeches. But when he asked for her name, rejecting Weasel as unsuitable, she struggled for an answer. Although the pale lord asked for the name her mother gave her, it says, She bit her lip, groping for another name. Lommy had called her Lumpyhead. Sansa used Horseface, and her father's men once dubbed her Arya Underfoot. But she did not think any of those were the sort of name he wanted. Nymeria, she said. Only she called me Nan for short. It appears that she didn't for one second consider telling him her true name. And for this caution, we can probably thank two influences, Sirio Pharrell and Old Nan. Back in King's Landing, Sirio had taught her, the seeing, the true seeing, that is the heart of it, and also to, quote, look with your eyes. 
Although it doesn't indicate that Arya was specifically alarmed by Roose's appearance, she certainly observed his eyes. And that unsettling feature was noted several times in the Game of Thrones, including at Moat Caelan, when Catelyn thinks, his eyes were curiously pale, almost without color, and his look disturbing. On the same occasion, Rob told his mother, that man scares me. And going back to the Harvest Festival at Winterfell, before Rob had called the Stark Banners, we get this exchange between him and Bran. Lord Roos never says a word. He only looks at me, and all I could think of is that room they have in the Dreadfort where the Boltons hang the skins of their enemies. That's just one of old man's stories, Bran said. A note of doubt crept into his voice. Isn't it? And so it was likely the combination of perceiving something disturbing in his appearance as both her mother and older brother had and recalling old Nan's frightening stories about what went on inside the Dreadfort that led her to hold her tongue. And if we wanted some sort of subliminal indication that Aya was indeed thinking about old Nan's stories, we should look no further than the name she did give him. She called me Nan for short. And of course, we shouldn't forget the first part of her answer was Nymeria for her direwolf from whom she could draw strength and courage. But it would appear that Nan may have inspired some caution in her, which was probably the correct approach. As far as courage goes, though, Arya professed to be unafraid of leeches when asked, in contrast to Bolton's squire, who will turn out to be one Elmar Frey, and more on him shortly, Being unafraid of leeches and not a fan of lions and manticores seems to be the main qualifications to serve as Roose Bolton's cupbearer, and so it was ordered that, for so long as I remain at Harrenhal, Nan, you shall be my cupbearer and serve me at table and in chambers. Roose Bolton ordered that his new cupbearer be made presentable and that someone should, quote, make certain she knows how to pour wine without spilling it. He then ordered Vargo Hote to remove the line of Lannister and Sir Armory's black manticore banners from the gatehouse to be replaced with his own flayed man and the direwolf of House Stark. Arya had no apparent reaction to seeing her own family's banner flying above the castle, testament perhaps to something Gendry had told her the day before. A sword's a sword, a helm's a helm, and if you reach in the fire, you get burned, no matter who you're serving. In other words, the lot of servants rarely changed with a change of lords, and Arya, for the moment, had no reason to believe otherwise. That same evening, as Arya assumed her newest identity to perfection, her third wish was fully realized. Not the name she had uttered to Jacken and then unsaid, but the one she had prayed to the old gods for. Help me get those men out of the dungeon so we can kill Sir Amory. It says, That evening, a page named Nan poured wine for Roose Bolton and Vargo Hote as they stood on the gallery, watching the brave companions parade Sir Amory Lorch naked through the middle ward. Sir Amory pleaded and sobbed and clung to the legs of his captors until Lorch pulled him loose and Shagwell kicked him down into the bear pit. The bear is all in black, Arya thought, like Yorin. She filled Roose Bolton's cup and did not spill a drop. Her cool detachment at the death of Sir Amory Lorch 
fittingly at the mercy of a black bear, says much and more about her state of mind. She is neither frightened nor reacting emotionally, and registers the death of a third person from her prayer list with merely the satisfaction one might show ticking a task off a job list. The next chapter, her final POV in A Clash of Kings, picks up many weeks later, likely at least several weeks after the battle between Stannis Baratheon and the Lannisters at the Blackwater. Arya has fallen into a routine of serving Roos, bringing his meals and wash water, waiting on him at table and in council, and being present during his frequent leechings as she had been designated his chief leech remover. During this time, while Sir Amory's dead soldiers had been given to a pyre in the yard, and Sir Amory himself to the bear pit where his bones would be found mouldering some months later by Jamie Lannister, many of the castle servants had been executed as collaborators. It says, Maester Tothmure for dispatching birds to Casterly Rock and King's Landing, the night Harrenhal had fallen. Luke and the armourer for making weapons for the Lannisters. Goodwife Hara for telling Lady Went's household to serve them. The steward for giving Lord Tywin the keys to the treasure vault. Their heads adorn the castle wall as a warning to others, and although it was apparently Bolton's man Steelshanks Walton who had wielded the axe and Roose Bolton himself who had given the orders... It was Nan who took the brunt of the blame from the castle's small folk for her involvement in the plot. The castle servants who had been spared, the cook and his staff, including Hot Pie, Gendry and most of his fellow smiths, and most of all, Goodwife Amabel, who had been a close companion of Goodwife Hera, were united in their disapproval of Nan. Amabel, though, seems to have taken her hatred to an extreme level, as the chapter begins, she accosted Nan at the well, near the stocks that had been assembled for Pia and several others who had shared their beds with Lannister soldiers. Naked and shaved, these poor women were being used by a parade of Bolton and Frey soldiers. Amabel, whom Arya thinks of as half-crazed, grabs her and makes her look at Pia, saying viciously, When this Northman falls, you'll be where she is. He will fall, too. Harrenhal pulls them all down in the end. Lord Tywin's won now. He'll be marching back with all his power, and then it will be his turn to punish the disloyal. And don't think he won't know what you did. Aya got away from the deranged woman by throwing a bucket of water on her and threatening her. With a flush of power that's highly reminiscent of her days as the ghost, she knows she could speak a word to Roose Bolton, and Amabel would suffer the same fate as Hara for the things she had just said. But in a display of mercy, Aya acknowledges to herself that she would do no such thing. She is, in fact, mostly sad that even her friends seem to blame her for the outcome of the plot to free the Northmen. And unfortunately, even though she thinks Gendry's disapproval is unfair, she doesn't find herself able to disagree with him when he points out that the bloody mummers are far worse than Lorch's men. Their foreign swords, whose methods include chopping off limbs and targeting people who had once acted as their informants for the Lannisters before they switch sides. In addition, Gendry reminds Arya that, quote, Septon Ut likes little boys, 
Kyburn does black magic, and your friend Biter eats people. And so Arya seems to be more isolated than ever during these weeks, to the extent that she sometimes regrets not leaving with Jacken. She probably looked at his coin and contemplated what would happen if she gave it to someone in Bravos on more than one occasion, and we get a description of it, a piece of iron no larger than a penny and rusted along the rim. One side had writing on it, queer words she could not read. The other showed a man's head, but so worn that all his features had rubbed off. The reader can guess that the lack of a face is actually intentional, and that the words are most likely the two that Jacken had taken such pains to teach her. Valor Morgulis, perhaps paired with the typical faceless man's response, Valor Doharis. One day the symbol and those four words will be at the center of her life. Now she doesn't know what any of it means and strongly suspects it was all a lie, to the extent that she actually threw the coin away one day, only retrieving it when she felt guilty or perhaps a twinge of regret focused on its supposed great value. One person Aya is noted talking to, and it seems perhaps on a regular basis, is Roose Bolton's squire Elmar Frey. Elmar is the youngest true-born son of Lord Walder Frey, though ultimately his legitimacy is called into question with the rumour that his mother, Anara Faring, had slept with her husband's great-grandson Black Walder and that he is actually the father of her children. Elmar is thus either the half-uncle or some sort of distant cousin of Roos's new wife, Walder Frey. Elmar is also, unbeknownst to himself or Nan, actually betrothed to Arya Stark of Winterfell, which he references several times at Harrenhal, always referring to her as my princess. On one occasion it says... Elmar liked to boast how he was the son of the Lord of the Crossing, not a nephew or a bastard or a grandson, but a true-born son, and on account of that he was going to marry a princess. Aya didn't care about his precious princess and didn't like him giving her commands. So this is an amusing example of how this chapter functions to reveal hidden aspects of the War of the Five Kings the reader would otherwise know nothing about. But we get many more such minor insights in this chapter as Arya goes about her duties serving Roos. In one such scene, Roos is attended by Kyburn, Steelshanks Walton, and a dozen Freys as he lies naked in bed, covered with leeches. About the leeches, it says, Bolton paid them no more mind than he did Arya, testament to the invisibility of the serving class in Westeros. The conversation deals with the Frey's concern about being besieged by Tywin Lannister at Harrenhal and what Roos, as their field commander, has planned. One of the first things the close reader, or more likely the re-reader, might pick up on is Roos Bolton's certainty that Tywin, quote, has many matters yet to settle at King's Landing. He will not march on Harrenhal for some time. Jumping ahead to the letters Tyrion sees his father writing in King's Landing after the Battle of Blackwater, we can begin to wonder, based on this seeming certainty, at what point Roose began corresponding with Tywin. But Sir Aenys Frey, Lord Walder's third son and commander of the 1500 Frey soldiers who are with Roose, doesn't seem to be aware of any collusion at this point. He's clearly afraid of Tywin Lannister and has little confidence in Edmure Tully's ability to give open battle. 
as evidence that this isn't the first such meeting she stood quietly observing, Aya thinks, if he does, he'll beat them. He'll beat them as he did on the Red Fork, a reference to her uncle's recent victory that had sent Tywin retreating to the southeast. The child in Aya sees only the victory there, rather than the fact that it was that victory that led to Tywin being on hand in King's Landing to defeat Stannis Baratheon. While the Freys enumerate their concerns about being undone by Tywin Lannister, Roose remains calm, asserting, I am not a man to be undone. Coming from anyone else, this might seem like bravado. Coming from Roose Bolton, it is, or should be, cause for alarm. But the Freys remain unconvinced, and Harris Haig and Hostine Frey, Stannis's Sir Stupid, press the matter in an exchange that not only reeks of treason and betrayal, but includes a revelation that rocks Arya to her core. Here's the passage. Sir Harris Hay, who was a fray on his mother's side, nodded vigorously. If Lord Tywin could defeat a seasoned man like Stannis Baratheon, what chance will our boy King have against him? He looked round to his brothers and cousins for support, and several of them muttered agreement. Someone must have the courage to say it, Sir Hostine said. The war is lost. King Rob must be made to see that. Roos Bolton studied him with pale eyes. His grace has defeated the Lannisters every time he has faced them in battle. He has lost the North, insisted Hostine Frey. He has lost Winterfell. His brothers are dead. The shock of these words nearly undid Arya. Failing to understand what could have happened, she struggled to remember Sirio's lesson to be still and silent. But no explanation was forthcoming from the phrase, only more hints at betrayal. To his younger brother's remark that if Stannis had won, all would be different, Hostine replied, Stannis lost. Wishing it were otherwise would not make it so. King Rob must make his peace with the Lannisters. He must put off his crown and bend the knee, little as he may like it. And so we see that the snivelling Freys are already on the verge of abandoning Rob, with his promise to marry one of their sisters likely being the only tenuous thread that was keeping them in the field on his behalf. For his part, Rue seems to be amused by his new wife's kinfolk and their waffling, remarking with what was almost certainly a strong dose of sarcasm. It's a fine thing to have so many valiant brothers in such troubled times. I shall think on all you've said. The phrase were dismissed and Nan summoned forth to remove the blood-filled leeches. Not daring to ask for an explanation, she resolved to ask Elmar when she next saw him. But before Nan could be dismissed, she had duties to attend to. Kyburn brought forth Lady Walda Bolton's daily letter to her husband, who listened to it without comment. He then dictated a letter to Sir Helman Tallhart at Darry. We learned that Tallhart had recently taken possession of the castle from its Lannister occupiers, and now Roos writes, ordering him to, quote, put the captives to the sword and the castle to the torch by command of the king. While it says that Arya was glad that Darry was to be destroyed, on account of it being the location where Queen Cersei had made Ned kill Lady, readers might raise an eyebrow at the assertion that this was Rob's order, especially given the second part of the missive. Roose's orders, purportedly directly from Rob, continued. 
he's to join forces with Robert Glover and strike east towards Duskendale. Those are rich lands and hardly touched by the fighting. It is time they had a taste. Glover has lost a castle and Tallheart a son. Let them take their vengeance on Duskendale. This is a peculiar order by any measure, utterly unlike anything Rob Stark would have personally ordered. Duskendale, in the far eastern part of the Crownlands on the shore of Blackwater Bay, is the seat of House Riker, the only member of which seen in the books until this point is the ill-fated Sir Jeremy Riker of the Night's Watch. It would have little tactical value to the Starks, who with towns like White Harbour and Maidenpool under their control had no need to take a difficult-to-defend port town in enemy territory. Nor was there any particular reason to take vengeance on House Riker, as uninvolved as they seemed to have been in the war. Roos's orders were, in hindsight, simply a ploy to detach a large contingent of Stark loyalists, some of whom, as Catelyn reminded Edmure at Riverrun, had been specifically ordered by Rob to remain at the Twins to ensure Lord Walder's loyalty, and the rest of whom represented a third of Rob's infantry, leaving Roos with mainly his own men and the 1500 Freys under Sir Anus's command at Harrenhal. Hindsight, of course, is flawless, and we cannot expect a ten-year-old to perceive these irregularities in the orders when the commanders who received them did not. What the reader will soon learn, early in A Storm of Swords, is that the orders were a trap. Tywin tells a bewildered Tyrion, quote, A large force of Northmen under Helmand Tallhart and Robert Glover are descending toward Duskendale. I've sent Lord Tarley to meet them, while Sir Gregor drives up the King's Road to cut off their retreat. Tallhart and Glover will be caught between them with a third of Stark's strength. So, here we have evidence even more clear than a hint at correspondence, mere weeks after the Lannister victory at the Blackwater, and critically, before news of Rob's marriage has reached the Riverlands, that Roos had already turned his cloak. One thing that the mention of Tallheart and Glover does is underline the fact that Arya had explicitly decided not to trust Roos Bolton. It says she wished that Robert Glover and Sir Helman Tallheart would come back to Harrenhal though. They had marched too quickly before she'd been able to decide whether to trust them with her secret. We can see that she needs more than just a name or a banner to convince her, and this natural caution turns out to be exactly what the situation calls for. That an obedience, as Roos ordered her to burn his wife's letter and put his chambers in order. He was going hunting for wolves, an ominous activity given what the reader just witnessed with the false orders to Tallheart and Glover. Wolves in the Riverlands are mentioned in nine out of ten Arya chapters in A Clash of Kings. In this one chapter alone, there have been two mentions of them thus far. Aenys Frey spoke of villages given over to wolves. And we heard Septon Utt's men were attacked by wolves. They came right into his camp not five yards from the fire and killed two horses. When he declares his intention of hunting wolves, Roos says, I can scarcely sleep at night for the howling. And he also tells Kyburn, it's said that direwolves once roamed the north in great packs of a hundred or more, and feared neither man nor mammoth. But that was long ago, and in another land, 
It is queer to see the common wolves of the South so bold. Little does he know that the architect of the great Riverlands wolf pack is standing right in the room with him. With Roos's departure, Nan busied herself with her duties, burning the letter first. As she thinks about Bran and Rickon, and note that her assumption is still that the enemies of her family are all Lannisters, it says, If the Lannisters hurt Bran and Rickon, Rob will kill them every one. He'll never bend the knee, never, never, never. He's not afraid of any of them. Curls of ash floated up the chimney. Arya squatted beside the fire, watching them rise through a veil of hot tears. If Winterfell is truly gone, is this my home now? Am I still Arya, or only Nan the serving girl, for forever and forever and forever? So this poignant moment reflects a deepening of Aya's identity crisis. While she pointedly refuses to contemplate any weaknesses in Rob, who she has complete confidence will avenge any harm done to Bran and Rickon, she was distressed at the possibility of Winterfell being destroyed. Clearly the idea of such an enduring symbol of House Stark being lost, a home that has been the object of a months-long odyssey from King's Landing, rocked the very foundations of her identity. It's while Arya carried on cleaning Bolton's solar that she saw the map. Earlier we noted that she was aware Rob and their mother were at River Run, but didn't know how close that might be, though she was resolved to find out. Her opportunity arose when she found the lands of the Trident laid out on a table. It was a map of everything from the neck to the Blackwater Rush, and she saw Harrenhal pictured on it above the god's eye, and there to the west, quote, not so far away, was River Run. Clearly, the realization that she was not so far from her brother and mother made her thoughtful. Her next stop was the Godswood, where she used her hidden broomstick sword and the branches and leaves of a birch tree and an old oak to kill, by proxy, everyone on her prayer list. Sir Gregor, Dunson, Polliver, Raff the Sweetling, the Tickler, the Hound, Sir Illyn, Sir Merrin, Queen Cersei, and Joffrey, Joffrey, Joffrey. Aya concluded her practice session by bowing to the heart tree and saying the words Jacken had taught her, Valamogulis, whose meaning she still didn't know, though it says she liked how the words sounded when she said them. On her way to the bathhouse to clean herself for the evening service with Lord Bolton, she witnessed a raven arriving at the rookery. Knowing it would be carrying some message or other, she wondered if it might be from Rob, with more news about Bran and Rickon. It's plain that as Roos's page, she'd had the opportunity to hear or read many of the messages he received, and that she hoped in that manner to learn more about the issue that filled her mind with dread and doubt. As she thought about her need to know more, it says she chewed on her lip, hoping, if I had wings, I could fly back to Winterfell and see for myself. And if it was true, I'd just fly away, fly up past the moon and the shining stars, and see all the things in old Nan's stories, dragons and sea monsters and the titan of Bravos, and maybe I wouldn't ever fly back unless I wanted to. 
This seems to us to be a lovely bit of foreshadowing. When she, at last, comes to accept that nearly her entire family is dead, she will sail away and see, among other things, the Titan of Bravos. And we can't rule out the possibility of her seeing other things old Nan had described to her. Dragons, sea monsters, the others and their undead servants, and more. And as far as the ending, well, we all expect that Arya will eventually, if most likely figuratively, fly back to Winterfell, although certainly not before she wants to do so. As for what news the raven actually did bring, it would be Elmar Frey who told her, just as she had hoped he would tell her the truth about her brothers. But before she saw Elmar, Roos returned from his hunting with nine dead wolves, including two pups. Sent to the kitchen for a supper, she was rebuffed by Hot Pie, which made her sad, though she couldn't tell if he hated her or was just scared. After she had delivered Roos's food and wine, she was dismissed, but it says something had a hold of her. Something which made her stop and question him about his plans, perhaps inspired by her uncertainty about where she belonged if Winterfell was lost, or perhaps thinking that if Roos were to take her with him when he left Harrenhal, she might fortuitously be delivered to her family at Riverrun, she wanted to know specifically what were his plans for her. And although he sternly rebuked her for her insolence in speaking without permission, it does say that she detached a note of amusement, perhaps because he assumed her concern arose because she enjoyed serving him and his leeches so much. But no, he informed her, he would not take her with him. She, along with the rest of the Harrenhal household, would remain there to serve Vargo Hote. If Arya needed a reason to take her chances with the not-so-far distance between Harrenhal and Riverrun, Roos had just given it to her. Forgiven just this once for her temerity, Nan departed, and as she went, with the significance only evident in hindsight, the guard on the door casually remarked, Storm coming. Smell the air? I was heading back to the godswood when she passed the wailing tower where the frays were housed and heard many raised voices within, talking and arguing. The squire Elmar Frey was sitting on the steps crying. She stopped to ask him what was wrong and his reply was the first hint to the reader that Rob had well and truly lost the frays. It says, My princess, he sobbed, we've been dishonoured, Amy says. There was a bird from the twins. My lord father says I'll need to marry someone else or be a septon. So the raven she had spied earlier was a message, likely for Aenys, from his father or one of his brothers back at the twins. Rob was still at the crag and wouldn't return to Riverrun for several weeks, perhaps more than a month, a circumstance which keeps the reader in the dark until chapter 15 of A Storm of Swords but it's obvious in hindsight that messages were sent to Lord Walder by the Freys who had accompanied Rob to the west, and that further messages reached his family at Harrenhal and at Riverrun. Yeah, in addition to this message that we witness in Arya 10 some two to three weeks after the Battle of the Blackwater, we later learn in A Storm of Swords that Catelyn had witnessed something she didn't understand around the same time. It says... Something else was wrong as well. 
On the day her brother returned, a few hours after their argument, she had heard angry voices from the yard below. When she climbed to the roof to see, there were knots of men gathered across the castle beside the main gate. Horses were being led from the stables, saddled and bridled, and there was shouting, though Catelyn was too far away to make out the words. One of Rob's white banners lay on the ground, and one of the knights turned his horse and trampled over the direwolf as he spurred toward the gate. Several others did the same. Those are men who fought with Edmure at the fords, she thought. What could have made them so angry? Has my brother slighted them somehow, given them some insult? She thought she recognized Sir Perwin Frey, who had traveled with her to Bitterbridge and Storm's End and back, and his bastard half-brother Martin Rivers as well. But from this vantage it was hard to be certain. Close to forty men poured out through the castle gates. To what end, she did not know. So at this point we can tell in hindsight that the Freys have abandoned their alliance with the Starks, though they would continue to sit on the fence for many weeks afterwards. Because... Elmar says in no uncertain terms that he had lost his princess. Arya's response, in spite of thinking he's stupid to cry about a princess, was at first to try to find a common ground with a boy who's been a companion, if not a friend, to her. It says, my brothers might be dead, she confided. Elmar's response, no one cares about a serving girl's brothers, led Arya to unwittingly wish for her own death. It was hard not to hit him when he said that. I hope your princess dies, she said, and ran off before he could grab her. In the god's wood, Arya took her wooden sword and went right to the heart tree, where she knelt in prayer. Addressing the red eyes of the gods, she said, Tell me what to do, you gods. A moment later, somewhere out in the dark, she heard, quote, The long, lonely howl of a wolf. And then, from out of the past, she heard her father's voice. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. In the throes of her identity crisis, Arya worried about her lost pack and said, I'm not even me now, I'm Nan. And once again, her father answered from the past, naming her Arya of Winterfell and reminding her, You told me you could be strong. You have the wolf blood in you. Remembering that long-ago night in King's Landing, Arya agreed, I'll be as strong as Rob. I said I would. It's a dramatic passage full of potent symbolism that marks a change in her arc as distinctly as if a line had been drawn between Nan and Arya Stark. And so, here we have it, in its entirety. For a long moment, there was no sound but the wind and the water and the creak of leaf and limb. And then, far, far off, beyond the godswood and the haunted towers and the immense stone walls of Hall, from somewhere out in the world came the long, lonely howl of a wolf. Goose prickles rose on Arya's skin, and for an instant, she felt dizzy. Then, so faintly, it seemed as if she heard her father's voice. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. But there is no pack, she whispered to the weirwood. Bran and Rickon were dead, the Lannisters had Sansa, John had gone to the wall. I'm not even me now, I'm Nan. 
You are Arya of Winterfell, daughter of the North. You told me you could be strong. You have the wolf blood in you. The wolf blood? Arya remembered now. I'll be as strong as Rob. I said I would. She took a deep breath, then lifted the broomstick in both hands and brought it down across her knee. It broke with a loud crack, and she threw the pieces aside. I am a dire wolf, and done with wooden teeth. Aya reclaiming her stark identity at the peak of her inner crisis, when she wasn't even sure if she could call herself Stark anymore, comes only after she's realised that no adults would be coming to save her, and that she would have to find her way home by herself. It's a new type of empowerment for her, and with the wolf howling outside the castle walls and her father's gods reminding her of who she is, combined with the symbolic breaking of her wooden sword, it marks the beginning of a new Arya Stark. While she's still a child, from here on she will be much less of a child than she has been. For starters, we'll no longer see her longing for an adult to step in and take care of things for her. Instead, we'll see that she's now willing to do whatever it takes, herself in the Stark way, to get back to her pack. She must have known what she had to do as soon as Roos Bolton told her that she would be left behind with the mummers, if for no other reason than that good wife Amabel had spelled out exactly what would happen to her when she no longer had the protection of the Bolton sigil on her breast. And so that night she lay in bed waiting for moonrise, quote, listening to the voices of the living and the dead whisper and argue. When it says they were the only voices she trusted anymore, It speaks to the inner certainty she had gained in the godswood, hearing her father speak to her from the past, and, as if in confirmation of everything she had heard and was thinking, she heard wolves howling again outside the walls of the great castle, quote, A great pack of them now. They are closer than the one I heard in the godswood. They are calling to me. Nymeria's pack may have been speaking to her from beyond the walls, but her father's words, the lone wolf's dies, clearly resonated with her. Just as Nymeria had to make her own pack when forced to survive on her own in the Riverlands, I would have to make do until she could be reunited with her true pack. And so she went to Gendry. Finding him asleep, she woke him and begged him to steal her a sword. When he refused, she changed tack and asked him to run away with her, telling him what Roos had told her. Knowing that his default answer would be that a lord is a lord, she lied to him outright. So, when Vargo hates the lord, he's going to cut off the feet of all the servants and keep them from running away. The smiths too. I heard Lord Vargo say so. He's going to cut one foot off everyone, the left one. So desperate now, she told him to enlist Hop High to steal food and three swords and to meet her at a postern gate in the East Wall. Her next move was to return to her sleeping cell in Kingspire Tower and don every article of clothing she owned. Next, she crept into Roos Bolton's solar. She found the map where she had left it and stole a dagger as well for good measure. Then she went to the stables, where she boldly woke a groom and, taking full advantage of her status as Lord Bolton's personal page, demanded three horses. Hunting horses, fast and surefoot. 
She had a momentary twinge of conscience when she realized the groom would be punished for helping her, no matter how unwittingly, but she carried on nonetheless. Twice as she made these preparations, there's mention of the wind, which we know to be a north wind, blowing through the wailing tower, making it keen and scream mournfully. Just like the night when she and Jackin freed the prisoners, it's an audible symbol that the north is present in Harrenhal. As she made her way to rendezvous with Gendry and Hot Pie, it says, No one saw her, and she saw no one, only a grey and white cat creeping along atop the godswood wall. It stopped and spit at her, waking memories of the Red Keep and her father and Sirio Pharrell. Many readers believe this was Bloodraven watching her from beyond the wall, skin-changing a cat to do so, as he might have done in King's Landing, and in fact may have continued to do with Sansa. There's ample hints scattered throughout the text of Lord Bloodraven keeping tabs on all of the Stark children, using the powers at his disposal. While this no doubt marks them as important, we can't say for sure that he wasn't also watching other players without taking a huge departure from our focus here, and so we'll leave it at that. Brynden Rivers might have watched Arya Stark's escape from Harrenhal, possibly even noting the events that came next. Arya waited, sharpening her stolen dagger, worrying that Gendry and Hot Pie wouldn't come. But when they arrived, cloaked and hooded, Gendry was wearing oiled chainmail and carrying three swords and his blacksmith's hammer, and Hot Pie was holding a bag of bread and a wheel of cheese. Arya left them with the horses and went to deal with the guard on the gate, saying, I'll get rid of him. Come quick when I call. When Hot Pie, in a callback to Kurtz, who had taught them to use animal sounds as signals, told her to hoot like an owl when she was ready, Arya replied, I'm not an owl. I'm a wolf. I'll howl. And then it says, Alone she slid through the shadow of the Tower of Ghosts. She walked fast to keep ahead of her fear, and it felt as though Sirio Pharrell walked beside her, and Yorin, and Jack and Hagar, and Jon Snow. She had not taken the sword Gendry had brought her, not yet. For this, the dagger would be better. It was good and sharp. Accompanied by all of her ghosts, and as she had done with the groom, she went boldly up to the guard, counting on the flayed man on her tunic to shield her. She had a moment's hesitation when she realised he was a Northman and not a Frey or a Mama, and wondered what he would do if she identified herself and commanded him to open the door. But in the end, she knew that wouldn't work. He was a Northman, it says, but not a Winterfell man. He belonged to Roose Bolton. But armed with only a dagger, she knew she had to get the tall man to her level so she could slit his unprotected throat. Anything else was risky and could create a disturbance that would bring other guards. And so, noting his ragged cloak, she decided that capitalising on greed was the best approach. Inspiration seemed to come from nowhere, and she told the man that his lord had sent her with silver for all his guards as a reward for their service. As unlikely as that seemed, it says he believed her because he wished it to be true. Yeah, and when he demanded his silver piece, Arya made as if to hand him Jackin's coin, fumbling it so it dropped to the ground. 
When he went to one knee to pick it up, it was as easy as sliding her sharpened dagger across his exposed throat. It says, His blood covered her hands in a hot gush, and he tried to shout, but there was blood in his mouth as well. Valor Morghulis, she whispered as he died. This is the first time Arya uses the phrase in connection with a death that she had caused. Ignorant of the meaning of the words, she somehow managed to use the phrase appropriately. And then, as she retrieved her precious coin, a wolf howled outside again. Remembering that this was the prearranged signal with Gendry and Hot Pie, perhaps we can view it as Nymeria summoning Arya's new pack for her, howling from without so that Arya didn't have to do it from inside the walls. When her two companions arrived, Arya had the gate unbarred. Hot Pie was shocked by the murder of the guard, but Arya's response was cocky, the old Arya from her early days with Yorin, but with a new, darker tone. What did you think I would do? she asked. The final words of Aya Ten are almost certainly a nod to Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. It says, Her fingers were sticky with blood, and the smell was making her mare skittish. It's no matter, she thought, swinging up into the saddle. The rain will wash them clean again. In Shakespeare's play, Lady Macbeth famously washes her hands in a symbolic scene in the final act that speaks to her consuming feelings of guilt over Duncan's death. Bloody hands and guilt is a theme that permeates the play. But earlier, she had shown her husband had been the one to kill Duncan her own symbolically bloody hands and claimed to feel no guilt at all, similar to Aya's It's no matter, the rain will wash them clean. She also tells her guilt-stricken husband Things without all remedy should be without regard. What's done is done. In other words, once the deed is done, there's no sense continuing to think about it, which is mirrored in Aya's response to Hot Pie, What did you think I would do? While a comparison with Lady Macbeth might seem a bit foreboding for Arya's future, we can probably take the issue of guilt to be entirely separate from Lady Macbeth's avarice and eventual descent into madness. In other words, while perhaps a day might come when Arya is much more afflicted by feelings of guilt for the violence she perpetrates, we don't think she will become a Lady Macbeth figure at any point in the future. Remember that George relishes references and homages, but in every case, he's keen to make them his own. For now, Arya seems to be on an arc where she does what she must to protect herself. Once again, much more like the Arya who left King's Landing with Yorin than the girl called Weasel who arrived at Harrenhal with Gregor Clegane. And up next, we'll trace the flight of Arya Stark and her new pack into the Riverlands as they run headlong into the midst of the company that will shepherd them across the region in a storm of swords. When she realized they were only a pack of wolves, she cupped her hands around her mouth and howled at them. When the largest of the wolves lifted its head and howled back, the sound made Arya shiver. (laughs) 
A final segment of this instalment picks up with Aya one of a storm of swords, as Aya and her companions flee from Harrenhal through the night, accompanied by rain and the sound of howling wolves, a chapter that covers not even two days. As the trio wind their way across country, Aya contemplates the pursuit that she knows must come. Whether it was Steelshanks Walton, Roose Bolton's chief lieutenant, or the Bloody Mummers, Aya knew they would come after them. It says, She had stolen three horses from the stables and a map and a dagger from Roose Bolton's own solar, and killed a guard on the postern gate, slitting his throat when he knelt to pick up the worn iron coin that Jack and Hagar had given her. Someone would find him lying dead in his own blood, and then the hue and cry would go up. They would wake Lord Bolton and search Harren Hall from Crenel to Cellar, and when they did they would find the map and the dagger missing, along with some swords from the armoury, bread and cheese from the kitchens, a baker boy, a prentice smith, and a cupbearer called Nan, or Weasel, or Arry, depending on who you asked. As frightening as the prospect of being pursued by the bloody mummers was, men so famed for their penchant for cutting off people's hands and feet that they were sometimes known as the footmen, it says, somehow she felt calmer than she ever had at Harrenhal. The rain had washed the guard's blood off her fingers. She wore a sword across her back. Wolves were prowling through the dark like lean gray shadows, and Arya Stark was unafraid. Being fearless and confident and in possession of the map, Arya was now the undisputed leader of the small band, and she took that responsibility very seriously, at one point thinking she would make much better time on her own, Arya knew, but she could not leave them. They were her pack, her friends, the only living friends that remained to her, and if not for her, they would still be safe at Harrenhal. And for that first night and all of the following day, the trio wandered the riverlands with Arya in the lead, attempting to simultaneously throw off any pursuit and make their way to Riverrun. But in spite of the map, Arya learned the hard way why the riverlands are called the riverlands. It is crisscrossed by rivers, not to mention rolling hills, which make travel difficult, and finding the red fork of the trident, which she wished to follow west, was nearly impossible given the utter lack of identifying markers for any of its many tributaries. At one point, she and Gendry attempted to identify a nameless river. Was it the Darry, the Greenapple, the Maiden, Little Willow, Big Willow? Neither of them could say. And with the rain that began as they made their escape, continuing on what Aya thinks of as the day without a dawn, even the sun failed to give guidance. Throughout, Arya repeated her usual mantras, Sirio's, fear cuts deeper than swords, and Valor Morghulis, which had become a comforting reminder of Jackin and the power he gave her, and of course her own list of names, reduced from ten to thirteen since her months at Harrenhal. It was now nearly a year since her escape from the Lannister soldiers and Sirio's death at the hands of Merrin Trant in King's Landing, and she still said his name every day along with the others. Sir Gregor, Dunson, Polliver, Raph the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Illyn, Sir Merrin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. Late in the night of their escape, as the group passed a dozen dead men hanging from a row of apple trees in a burned-out village, she recited her prayer silently as a frightened hot pie prayed aloud for the mother's mercy. It says, She ended it with Valor Morghulis, 
touched Jackin's coin where it nestled under her belt, and then reached up and plucked an apple from among the dead men as she rode beneath them. It was mushy and overripe, but she ate it, worms and all. Not only does this call back to eating worms in a clash of kings, and lommy greenhands calling her worm breath, but it looks forward to a feast for crows, prefiguring a time when a priest in Bravos would appear to her as a yellowed skull with a few scraps of skin clinging to the cheeks and a white worm wriggling from one empty eye socket. And she, quote, kissed him where his nose should be and plucked the grave worm from his eye to eat it, but it melted like a shadow in her hand. In her first chapter at Harrenhal, it was noted that Weasel didn't need to eat worms, but as a marker of her fearlessness and the courage she was drawing from her wolf blood, this can also symbolise the inverse, that Weasel was so far removed from Arya Stark that she had lost a critical, fearless part of herself, only now restored with her reconnection to that wolf blood thanks to her recent experience in the Godswood at Harrenhal. And in fact, perhaps the most notable element of this chapter is the constant presence of wolves. From those wolves howling and prowling through the darkness around them as they made their escape, to a trio they surprised with a kill, and a pack that Arya noticed appeared to be following them. It says, Once, from the crest of a ridge, she spied dark shapes crossing a stream in the valley behind them, and for half a heartbeat she feared that Roose Bolton's riders were on them. But when she looked again, she realized they were only a pack of wolves. She cupped her hands around her mouth and howled down at them. When the largest of the wolves lifted its head and howled back, the sound made Arya shiver. Another major theme of the chapter is Arya's fears of pursuit, of being caught by Bolton's pursuers, who she knew must come. She was constantly thinking how they must make better progress and frequently retraced her steps as her companions rode ahead in an effort to lay false trails. In this, we think she was likely capitalising on her childhood at Winterfell in a culture where hunting was a common pursuit. Neither of her city-born companions were adept at riding the horses she had stolen for them, nor did they exhibit any woodcraft, but Arya was always grasping at half-remembered skills she learned in a different life. That knowledge wasn't always transferable to her present circumstance, including her attempt to use the moss growing on trees as a sort of compass when the sun failed them. Her companions accepted her advice that moss always grew on the south side of trees until the moment Gendry pointed to a tree with moss on three sides. After that, she mostly followed her instincts, riding without stopping, always pushing on in order to evade the pursuers until night fell on their first full day of freedom. Arya wanted to continue riding through the night, overriding Hot Pie's protests, but eventually her own body betrayed her. When Gendry found her asleep in the saddle, he called a halt and demanded that Arya sleep while he kept watch. And so she lay down, saying her list of names aloud, and fell asleep. And that's when she had the wolf dream. It says, Her dreams were red and savage. And the bloody mummers were there, four men on horseback, quote, a pale Lysini and a dark, brutal axeman from Ib, the scarred Dothraki horse lord called Igo, and a Dornishman. They were hunting Arya, of that she was certain, but there's a contradiction when it says, but they were wrong, she was hunting them. 
And we know, with a certainty as sure as Arya's own, that Arya is the wolf. In fact, it's spelled out for us in a passage that fully introduces wolf dreams into Arya's arc. In A Clash of Kings, we saw both Bran and Jon dreaming of being their wolves, and while Arya has had numerous dreams about wolves, here at last she does the same. Here's the full passage. She was no little girl in the dream, she was a wolf, huge and powerful, and when she emerged from beneath the trees in front of them and bared her teeth in a low rumbling growl, she could smell the rank stench of fear from horse and man alike. The Lysini's mount reared and screamed in terror, and the others shouted at one another in man-talk, but before they could act, the other wolves came hurtling from the darkness and the rain, a great pack of them, gaunt and wet and silent. The fight was short but bloody. The hairy man went down as he unslung his axe. The dark one died, stringing an arrow, and the pale man from Lys tried to bolt. Her brothers and sisters ran him down, turning him again and again, coming at him from all sides, snapping at the legs of his horse and tearing the throat from the rider when he came crashing to the earth. Only the belled man stood his ground. His horse kicked in the head of one of her sisters, and he cut another almost in half with his curved silvery claw as his hair tinkled softly. Filled with rage, she leapt onto his back, knocking him headfirst from his saddle. Her jaws locked on his arm as they fell, her teeth sinking through the leather and wool and soft flesh. When they landed, she gave a savage jerk with her head and ripped the limb loose from his shoulder. Exulting, she shook it back and forth in her mouth, scattering the warm red droplets amidst the cold black rain. At a convention in 2007, George confirmed that all the Stark children are wargs. This dream, which ends Arya I of A Storm of Swords and is therefore her introduction in that book, firmly establishes Arya as a skin changer and Nymeria as her principal host. Technically, at this point, her only host, since Arya skin changing other animals won't be introduced until A Feast for Crows in another time and place. In the dream, Nymeria, whose pack we can guess has been shadowing Arya and her companions as they made their escape, discovers a group of Roose Bolton's pursuers, four of Varga Hote's bloody mummers. The Ibanese, Dornishmen, and Lysini were swiftly dispensed by Nymeria's pack, but the Dothraki, true to his heritage, stood his ground, killing two of the smaller wolves of her pack in the process. It was Arya, Nymeria herself, who finished the man off, ripping his arm off at the shoulder and, quote, exulting as she did so. Arya's feeling of empowerment has just been kicked into overdrive. From the beginning of her time at Harrenhal, when she had been reduced to a sheep, a mouse, or a weasel, she'd progressed to being the ghost as Jack aided her in killing her enemies, and now she has taken on that task for herself. In what is clearly the Stark way, she's reassumed her identity as a Stark and a wolf. The next Aya chapter in The Storm of Swords deals with Aya and her companions meeting members of a group that had been mentioned so many times in passing in the previous two books, but had remained mysterious and off-page until this point, the infamous Beric Dundarian's men, who will later find out call themselves the Brotherhood Without Banners. 
Some days had passed and the trio had apparently at last found the trident and were following the Red Fork upstream heading for River Run. They had discovered a burnt-out cottage, hardly an unfamiliar sight in that war-ravaged countryside, and were searching for food in the remnants of its garden. The new arrivals announced their approach by singing, and Aya had a moment's confusion as she wondered why the mummers would be singing. As Gendry and Hot Pie attempted to conceal themselves with the horses, Arya revealed herself, hoping to convince the newcomers to move along. It was a trio of men who had found them, led by the singer, who introduced himself as Thomas Sevenstreams, a tall man in a yellow great cloak called Lem, and a Dornish archer named Angai whom the sharp-eyed reader may recall was the victor of the archery contest at the hand's tourney back in A Game of Thrones. Angai had rejected Ned Stark's offer of a place in the hand's guard and not been heard from since. How he got to be here is a story for another day, but as we'll see, there's a certain amount of irony to him being a part of the group that's introduced in this chapter, given his prior refusal to work for Ned Stark. Using the clever tactic of observing the flayed man on Aya's tunic, Tom deduced that the three were runaways from Harrenhal, though Hot Pie was at pains to declare that they were neither Roos Boltons nor Lannister men. When he turned the questioning around and demanded to know whose men Tom, Lem and Angai were, the answer came as a surprise. Here's the exchange. Angai the archer said, We're king's men. Aya frowned. Which king? King Robert, said Lem, in his yellow cloak. That old drunk, said Gendry scornfully, he's dead, some boar killed him, everyone knows that. Aye, lad, said Tom Sevenstrings, and more's the pity, he plucked a sad chord from his harp. And this wasn't the first, nor will it be the last time, that Gendry would unintentionally speak of his natural father, whose identity he doesn't know, with scorn. Just another one of those oft-hidden nods George likes to include for his readers. It then goes on to say, quote, Arya didn't think they were king's men at all. They looked more like outlaws, all tattered and ragged. They didn't even have horses to ride. King's men would have had horses. Arya, of course, is both right and wrong, and for more on the fascinating origins and career of the Brotherhood Without Banners, check out our Episode 9, The Last King's Men, from many, many moons ago. Somewhat in spite of themselves, Aya and her companions agreed to accompany the newcomers to an inn a few miles upstream. When they arrived there, Aya noticed two details that should be highly significant to the reader. First is the boat. It says, Gendry, she called, her voice low and urgent. They have a boat. We could sail the rest of the way up to River Run. It would be faster than riding, I think. And second was the sign on the inn. The painted sign above the door showed a picture of some old king on his knees. Setting aside the fact that the old king was in fact Aya's ancestor, Torren Stark, the so-called king who knelt, thereby saving his people from devastation during the conquest of Westeros by Aegon Targaryen and his sisters, these two details will be familiar to readers of A Storm of Swords from just two chapters previously. Yeah, that's right. In Jamie 2 of A Storm of Swords, Jamie Lannister 
recently freed from his captivity in River Run by Catelyn Stark, had arrived at the Inn of the Kneeling Man in the company of his cousin, Cleos Frey, and Brienne of Tarth. That trio was heading to King's Landing on the orders of Lady Stark to find Tyrion Lannister and force him to keep his word regarding the return of Cat's daughters in exchange for Jaime's life, a deal that Rob would never have accepted, but that Cat, recently bereaved of her husband and two youngest sons, was only too happy to make. Finding only the male innkeeper and a boy with a crossbow present, Brienne bought three sorry-looking horses from the stable for the price of three gold dragons and the skiff they had arrived from River Run in. Being in league with the Brotherhood Without Banners, the innkeeper had recommended the trio travel south along the Red Fork and then take a certain road through the woods. Brienne, being smarter than she looked, according to Jamie, eventually took the road the innkeeper had warned them not to take, thus evading an ambush by the Brotherhood. Tomo Sevens referred to this in Aya 2 when the innkeeper noticed three new horses in the stable, the horses Aya had stolen from Harrenhal. Tom said, Aye, and better horses than the three you gave away, only to get an annoyed response from the innkeeper. I never gave them away, I sold them for a good price and got us a skiff as well. Anyways, you lot were supposed to get them back. While there are many parallels between Jamie's and Aya's respective travels in the Riverlands in A Storm of Swords, this particular one is a direct mirror and deserves a mention. Yeah, so let's spell it out. In Jamie 2, Jamie, Brienne and Cleos left the Inn of the Kneeling Man, having traded the Tully skiff they arrived in from River Run for three horses. The trio were to have been pursued by the Brotherhood without banners and robbed of the horses, but the outlaw gang missed them, and their group ultimately ended up being captured by the Bloody Mummers and brought to Harrenhal. And as we've just seen at the beginning of A Storm of Swords, Arya and her two companions left Harrenhal on three stolen horses, the Bloody Mummers pursued, but failed to capture them, and the trio ultimately ended up captured by the Brotherhood Without Banners and brought to the Inn of the Kneeling Man, where Arya tried to trade her three stolen horses for the, unbeknownst to her, Tully Skiff in order to make their way to River Run. Unfortunately for Arya, the BWB weren't about trading and planned to take the horses with only a promise on paper of three gold dragons, the amount Brienne had paid for their three horses just days before. The demand of trade in lieu of payment was enormously amusing to the men who had brought them to the inn, and we cannot say if they ever would have explained the irony to Aya, since at that moment Gendry, who had been left guarding the precious horses, burst into the inn with a warning. Soldiers! Coming down the road! A dozen of them! In that moment, Arya was overcome with panic, and although the people at the inn tried to reassure her, they failed utterly. All she could think of was being recaptured by the Mummers or the Mountains men and losing everything she had worked so hard for. In her frenzy to escape, when Lem grabbed her arm to prevent her hauling out her sword, it says, Her free hand closed around her tankard and she swung it at Lem's face. The ale sloshed over the rim and splashed into his eyes and she heard his nose break and saw the spurt of blood. When he roared, his hands went to his face and she was free. Run! she screamed, bolting. But it was no good. 
Lem had her again in seconds, and Tom stopped Gendry from coming to her aid with a dagger. As Lem lifted her up and dangled her in the air, with blood dripping from his broken nose, the riders arrived in the courtyard of the inn. Their entrance is described in great detail and ends with one of the few happy reunions of the entire series to date. Here's the passage. A moment later, a man came swaggering through the open door, a Tairoshi even bigger than Lem, with a great thick beard, bright green at the ends, but growing out grey. Behind came a pair of crossbowmen, helping a wounded man between them, and then others, a more ragged band Aya had never seen, but there was nothing ragged about the swords, axes and bows they carried. One or two gave her curious glances as they entered, but no one said a word. A one-eyed man with a rusty pothelm sniffed the air and grinned, while an archer with a head of stiff yellow hair was shouting for ale. After them came a spearman in a lion-crested helm, an older man with a limp, a bravosi sellsword, a... Harwin? Aya whispered. Although Arya recognized Harwin, her father's man, Holland's son, who used to, quote, lead her pony around the yard, ride at Quintain with John and Rob, and drink too much on feast days, Harwin didn't know her immediately. As Arya wept with relief at seeing someone from her past, someone she had known all her life and whom she thought she might be able to trust, Harwin reacted with suspicion, noting the bolt and sigil on her tunic and asking, How do you know me? Who are you, some serving boy to Lord Leech? Responding to his suspicion with confusion, we get a glimpse of the identity crisis that still rages inside her despite her recent progress in reclaiming her starkness. It says, For a moment, she did not know how to answer. She'd had so many names. Had she only dreamed Arya Stark? I'm a girl, she sniffed. I was Lord Bolton's cupbearer, but he was going to leave me for the goat, so I ran off with Gendry and Hot Pie. You have to know me. You used to lead my pony when I was little. And then he recognized her, calling her by one of the many names she had left in her past. Aya Underfoot? Lem, let go of her. Lem's response was to drop her to the ground and ask, who in seven hells is she supposed to be? The chapter ends on Harwin's reply, surely further confirmation that Ari, Weasel, Nan had finally reclaimed her identity, for better or worse. And with this scene, readers can be forgiven if they, like Arya, and perhaps even Harwin himself, who is noted to have a choked voice, shed a tear. It says, The Han's daughter. Harwin went to one knee before her. Arya Stark, of Winterfell. Throughout her arc in A Clash of Kings, since Joran's death, Arya had longed for an adult to help her. At Harrenhal, Lord Kerwin and Jacken both provoked a wild hope in her that rescue might be at hand, and before she took it upon herself to free Robert Glover and his Northmen, obviously hoping once again that she might find an adult willing to help her achieve her goal of reuniting with her family, she had even found herself wondering what Tywin Lannister would do if she revealed herself to him. The glaring exception, of course, was Roose Bolton, who she finally took it upon herself to escape from. Not three weeks later, having taken her rescue into her own hands, she encountered Harwin at the inn that commemorated the submission of her famous ancestor.
the rest of her arc in A Storm of Swords will deal in large part with Aya realising that even people with the best intentions mainly see her as a commodity. A commentary on the lives and value of noble women and children, in contrast to the similar commentary her A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings arcs offered on the plight of small folk who found themselves caught up in the quarrels and conflicts of the nobility. That commentary will of course continue in A Storm of Swords as well, as we get to see much more of the wasteland the Riverlands is becoming in the wake of the war between Stark and Lannister. But for Arya, no longer anonymous, the personal impact of what it means to be Arya Stark will be profoundly conflicting. And that's where we'll pick up the story when we return with part three of our coverage of Arya Stark of Winterfell. Thanks so much for joining us today for this second episode in our series about Arya Stark. And now it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R. R. Martin for giving us Arya Stark, and thanks to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Our heartfelt thanks to AJ, Aegon the Sixth, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Courtney, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Diana Dane, Esme, Liz, Emily of the Eerie, Evan, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, History of Westeros, Isaac, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Scenario on the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old, Bay of Crabs, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Nessie, the Questing Beast, Mage Marmot, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margarita, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, Matt M, and Matt R, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, anime lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Schwartz the Black, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sheila, CERN, that shiny bastard, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, the Tory Loon, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.